What would I give For just a few moments What would I give Just to have you near Well tell me you will try To slip away somehow Welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that's Felix Cavalieri and Slip Away from his new album, Then and Now. And we'll be covering Felix's time with the Rascals, songwriting, and solo highlights. So let's hear my chat with Felix. How are you, my man? Really well. Um, I'm in England, and it's a pleasure to uh, hear you loud and clear over the Atlantic. It's really amazing, isn't it? I love it. Yeah. Excellent. How's your weather there? Cold. We're due some snow shortly. Yeah. It's what you'd expect in uh, the UK in January. <laughs> yes. And it's the same here in Tennessee. Tennessee, although we have the sun shining now, so everything's good. One of the reasons I really want to speak to you, Felix, is just listening to your new album, Then and Now. Yes. You've got a mix of older songs, some of which I weren't familiar with, and you've right. rectified that with me. And then you've got new material, and they all, they all gel together. Tell us about that concept. Well, basically, uh, we came up with this idea to do five songs that influenced me. And that was the hard part because I could do a hundred songs that influenced me, you know. And so basically, we record those and then write five new ones that hopefully shows that influence to a degree. So um, my guitar player, who I I co-produced with, he's from uh, South Carolina. So he's able to grow up with a lot of these songs that were really, really uh, you know, uh, found in the uh, southern part of the United States. Because I grew up in the New York area. Yeah. So we just had a ball. So we started it, and then we had this horrible pandemic hit. So we said, wow, well, through the magic of computers, let's finish it. And we just really, really enjoyed it because, it, first of all, it kept us occupied during that terrible time, you know. Yeah. And second of all, it, it was just a joy to do. One of the lead tracks that has been occupying my uh, my mind is Slip Away. So that's, yes. that's Clarence Carter. And I wasn't familiar with that song, but I think 
You were label mates with Clarence Cowell, weren't you? And that's a perfect example. That and well, some of the other ones are well known, but you know, like the one by Bobby Moore, you know, these were regional hits here for the most part. You know, I mean, they were not like they never hit top 40 or top 10 across the US, but down south in certain regional areas, they were big hits. That's the interesting thing because that's sort of gone now. You know, with the exception of internet, everything's all the same. It's all homogenized. You know, we've got Live Nation dictating every song. But in the old days, if you went, for example, to New Orleans, you had a whole different set of uh, top 40 hits from, say, Los Angeles. And I'm sure Britain as well. But, you know, that seems to have been homogenized into like Bush now, you know. It was a labor of love. Yeah, I was speaking to Harold Bronson, formerly of Rhino Records, very recently, and he was talking about the same thing. Really? Those regional hits where you'd have a song that was big in an area, elsewhere it wouldn't necessarily hit, and that was one of the great things. And I guess that's one of the things about the the 1960s. Not only did you have groups like yourselves that were producing amazing material, you had bands that didn't necessarily get into the, the top end of the charts but had great material. Bobby Moore and the River Maces, Searching for My Love. Again, brilliant song. Not for me. Right. It's a great song, man. It's just a great song, you know. And it just brings a smile to your face when you go back and say, like, wow, that's really... You know, the interesting thing about that song is Robert Plant did an album. He also did that song recently. Of course, he didn't try to emulate the original. He did it, like, in a newer style, you know, it's... He's a country guy now, you know. He's got a very good ear, so you're in good company, uh, Robert Plant. Yes.
And you've got um, some material by artists that everyone's familiar with, legends, Ray Charles and uh, Benny King as well. Well, these, uh, these people really, really influenced me. Seriously. I mean, Ray Charles was, was the first time, basically, I, I heard someone play piano. I was trained in classical music. And when I heard Ray Charles, I was just flabbergasted. I was saying, what the heck is that? I mean, that certainly wasn't part of my curriculum. You know what I'm saying? And it just opened up a whole new door, as did Jerry Lee Lewis and Fats Domino. You know, being a keyboard player, these uh, people really influenced me. And then as far as Benny, I got to know Benny because we were we were like label mates again. You know, first of all, he was the nice, one of the nicest men I ever met. I think I stole everything I could from his voice. I love his voice, loved his voice. Soul Love, that's one of your original tracks, isn't it? Yeah, that's an original. I had this uh, this young fellow from Canada come down here and write that with me uh, a little before. And so he recorded it and he put it out in the, in Toronto. And, I, and I, I really liked that song. I put that out as well here. Are you including some of the material from your album in, on your live dates at all? You know, I really want to. I have to kind of slip them in there you know what i'm saying because you know you got the old ricky nelson yeah. song you know like garden party uh the people that come to see us they they they, they really want to hear the oldies but goodies but yeah. occasionally you know we we do get a venue and and like for example a private party or something right where we could do that i really would like to do that but band really wants to do it too you know they they like playing these songs that we record i, I hope to do another one of these i really enjoyed it Felix and the Escorts, the Syracuse. Not that many people be familiar, but you were releasing material in your uni days, writing material as well. 
Yeah, you know, I uh, I was in school at that time. I was at Syracuse University, and somebody uh, approached me to do a record. And uh, at that time, you know, we had uh, James Brown had this uh, this song where he mentioned all the cities of the U.S. Miami, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia. So I said, why, why don't I do that with with all the schools? You know, with all the the people that we play in uh, at that time, football. You know, that was the big uh, the big sport up at Syracuse. So, yeah, so I, I started writing then, you know, and uh, along came people like Bob Dylan and Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Love and Spoonful. And they said, wow, we can write. We don't have to go to publishers. And so that's really was like a real epiphany again yeah. to start writing for real. Is it true you had contact with the Beatles when you went over to Hamburg with Joey D? Yeah, it was a strange uh, meeting that kind of like we, we did have a lot of things uh in common. For example, uh, my our manager was the gentleman that brought them to U.S., uh, Sid Bernstein. And uh, I got to know them well, as much as you can get to know icons like that. You know, I got to know uh, George mostly. And uh, I toured with Ringo. It's just an amazing what, what their contribution was to music. A lot of people don't really realize all of the things that they did for us which is something we'll always be appreciating. Hey, everybody, pick up the thing, go with me. There's a crazy thing I want you to see. It's not the twist or the bop, the stomp or the slop now. It's the circuit. The chick over UCLA. Do the cues every day Even down in open state That's a really good place NYU and Colgate too Do the third cues now Some do it fast, some do it slow now See the stands everywhere you go in the early days of the rascals it seemed that you had a bit of an ear for a great track by another artist good loving uh, being a, a case and example where did you hear that the first time well you know in in those days the the venues that we played you know they were mostly clubs and the owners demanded that you do covers they did not want to hear new material there was no such thing as new material as i say you know dylan and beatles they kind of uh brought that into the mainstream but they wanted to hear at the clubs uh they wanted their audience to be familiar with songs that they heard on the radio well this presented a real challenge because i had to go out and find songs that were actually on the radio now they weren't necessarily top 40 but again they were regional hits or in my case they were hits on the r&b stations you know new york had a a plethora of great stations in those days that you could hear songs that never crossed over. They never made the uh, so-called pop charts. 
So that's where I found Good Lover. That's where we found Mustang Sally. That's where we found these gems, uh, Land of a Thousand Dances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we put them in our set. And Atlantic Records, when they when they signed us, they heard those songs. And it was very interesting because not only did we release those songs, but they gave them to Wilson Pickett. So he had these monster hits with songs that we found. Yeah. Of course, they never gave us any credit for that, nor any money. Good loving it. That topped the charts, didn't it? I mean, that's incredible success. I mean, yeah. there's a hit and then there's topping the charts. Yeah, you know, you never know, man. Like, you never know when the hand of God is going to come down and say, you're in. Yeah, that was a total surprise. It was our second release. The only kind of instance that we were known that that was is that every time that we did that song live, people jumped up and danced. They immediately reacted to that song. So that was kind of a clue that this could happen. But no, we had no idea. seem that long when your writing really took effect and you proved yourself with right. I've been lonely too long that in your own right, right you could be just as successful well again that was a stroke of luck because uh, that was a big leap you know because uh, to start writing your own songs and have hits with them was quite a challenge but thankfully you know the bar was way up due to those uh, wonderful English lads so we did it but, you know, that was a struggle. It's something that when you're young, you don't even think about it being a struggle. You just think, well, we can do this. Let's do it. And it worked. Tell us about you guys as a, a live actor. There's some great footage of I've Been Lonely Too Long, for example, of you guys on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. Dino on the drums. Yeah. That's something else as well. When I saw the Beatles, in, I think it was Frankfurt was the first place that we worked with them. I really thought they were more of a singing group than a playing group. I did not really see, you know, any fantastic kind of like, you know, shining kind of star. So I said, well, how about if I put a band together that's got great musicians and great singers? And it worked. Dino Donnelly uh, was a find and a half. I just lucked out finding him. I found him basically working in a place called the Metropole, which was a, a place where you looked in the window and you saw the bands. It later turned out to be a strip club. But, you know, like in the beginning, it was a jazz club. And I saw this drummer. 
Now, Dino was was in the presence of people who were like band leaders as drummers. Yeah. And I'm talking about Gene Krupa and like Louis Belston and Buddy Rich. And they were showmen. You know, Lionel Hampton is another one who's a percussionist. They put on a show besides playing great drums. Not too many people were doing that in the rock world, if any. So when I saw him play, I was blown away. I mean, because not only did he keep time, but he had a great show that people just really dug, you know, and, and he milked it. He loved it. So that was a real that was a real stroke of luck. As I say, he, he was uh, started off his career uh, as a drummer in New Orleans. I mean, he learned from New Orleans bands. So he kind of had that Motown stuff comes from New Orleans as well. So he had something happening. The other attribute that he had is that he was left-handed, like Jimmy was, Jimmy Hendrix. And he never turned his, his uh, drums around. So his left hand was always a powerhouse, didn't have to be developed. So again, God bless Dino, man, because I, I mean, I enjoyed playing with him from the first time I, I met him. Certainly over here in the UK, grooving is just a it's a classic. Yeah. Tell me about the origins of that song from the the inspirational lyrics and themes of it to the the unique sound of that record as well. Yeah. 
Well, you know, there's so many stories attached to that. The important part of it is, of course, the musical part of it, A. Growing up uh, in New York City, there's a tremendous Latin influence, which now is throughout the entire U.S. So, I mean, the, the Latin music is very powerful. And uh, they also have this kind of like a Sunday picnic outdoors. I always felt that in my soul, this was a, this was a great type of music. When I worked, when I first started, I worked up in the Catskill Mountains, which always had Latin bands, always for the summers. Uh, the second thing is the theme, you know, like uh, when you're a musician, you work normally on the on the weekends, Friday and Saturday. And so the way I tell the story is that, uh, you know, the girlfriends and the wives don't particularly care for that. You know, they don't think that's the greatest idea because they're not included. So you have Sunday afternoon. So grooving on a Sunday afternoon fits all of those parameters. A beautiful morning creates a picture. We talked about the Beatles earlier where they used the studio as a yeah. almost as an instrument. You guys seem to be doing that. Yeah. You've got wind chimes with a beautiful morning, for example. You're experimenting with sound. Well, I uh I always like to tell this story because uh, those lads put out this uh, yellow submarine. Yeah. And in the beginning, I heard a ship bell. I heard, you know, like so I said, Wow, you know what they're doing? I said to Paul, I met Paul in England one time, I said, you created an environment of like the ship, and it was great. And he looked at me like I was mad. But he did. He's, that, that's, he created the environment of the ship yeah. and the bell and the sea. And I did the same thing with the Beautiful Morning with, with the birds. Actually, the birds were not real birds. They were uh, Eddie Brigatti, my singers, <laughs> and his brother. But yeah, I, I always thought that that was a really great idea. How did the writing work with you and Eddie as well? It seemed that you seemed to have a quite a big hand in the driving force behind them. Well, yes, you know, but uh, again, emulating John and Paul, you know, was the idea, you know, and uh, I would write uh, uh, the music first and I would write a title and I would kind of give the theme over to Eddie and, and uh, you know, kind of through him because... Um, I guess the lyrics are not as easy to do as the uh, music is easy to do. So uh, we collaborated, you know, we collaborated as much as we could. And then, you know, unfortunately, uh, I think the strain became a little bit too much because in those years, you know, we used to do two albums a year, which was a lot of work. Although I never considered it work. I thought it was a blessing to be able to do that. Uh, I think he had a tough time, you know, struggling through. So uh, I just kept on plowing through. Afternoon. 
the musical element to How Can I Be Sure is quite different. It's almost French of an old classic ballad to it. It was very different. How did you get that sort of unique element to that song? You know, it's so interesting. Michelle, my bill. <laughs> As I say, the influences that they had. Okay, here's a ballad, you know, and it's done in a French motif. There was no way we could ever get that on the radio if we, did, if we didn't have Michelle. I mean, like I say, they opened these doors for us. The radio stations had to play the beat. So they opened the door. I was trained. I could pretty much do any kind of music. But to have it played on the radio, you needed the Beatles opening the door. Yeah. I guess I've mentioned them enough, but I can't just say enough about how they helped us. What about the cover versions of, of that song as well? You had a great version by Dusty Springfield and yeah. David Cassidy. I mean, I yeah. I don't know if it was a hit in the States, but over here in the UK, in the it was big. It was the biggest song really when it came out. It was absolutely huge. Yeah, he was a nice fellow too. You know, Dusty, of course, she was, uh, you know, on another Atlantic Records uh, thing, and uh, uh, that we really she was so good. And of course, uh, Olivia Newton John. Yeah. And a lot of people did that song. But again, you know, that uh, was something that that's one of the songs that I've always really uh, appreciated. The fact that we even had a chance to to get it on the radio and have it as I think it made number two, but it's a good song. I've always been proud of. How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? The other aspect of some of your songs are the rascal songs is the positive message as well, which yeah. people got to be free, for example. It still resonates today. Yeah, unfortunately, it does still resonate today. Yeah, it's just part of like, you know, like uh, my uh, genetic makeup. You know, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I recently went to New York with my wife and we saw spam a lot. Yeah. Always look on the bright side of life. And uh, I've always looked on the bright side of life. 
I've been very fortunate to have, I believe, a good life with good family, good parents, good luck, some bad luck, but always, uh, always look on the bright side of life. That's just, uh, you know, as I say, that's just part of my nature, I think. Your albums by the uh, the late 60s and into the early 70s continued to develop. You had the you know, Freedom Suite album, the album C, and there are some gems on that that people may not be familiar with, like Real Thing right. is a great example. Oh, yeah. The soul element to that, and it yeah. works so well. Well, I happen to like that song as well. Well, you, the thing that I, I've always appreciated is uh, the environment that Atlantic Records provided for us to work in. First of all, free studio time they gave us, which is kind of unheard of, you know, especially in those days. They, they allowed you to create. Arif Mardin, Tom Dowd, in the room with us. I can't say thank you because it would be ridiculous. I mean, you know, like the, the talent that was in that room, uh, you know, our Tommy left after a while, but Arif was just a gem. He worked with the Bee Gees. Uh, he worked with uh, so many bands, so many people. Uh, and being able to create in that atmosphere, which, as I, as you know, was a, was a very heavy R&B label, uh, period. I mean, until they started signing us and the Stones and Phil Collins, they were almost a completely black place you know i mean like you went there to hear jazz they created an environment that accepted those songs it's almost like when you went in the studio the rhythm was already done you know it was in the room it was innate so uh that plus the fact that uh you know growing up in new york city uh we were exposed uh, to uh alan freed's uh early rock and roll or actually the beginning of rock and roll which was all r&b i mean there, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was the real deal coming from, you know, mostly the southern part of the United States, also Chicago. Uh, it was the thing that it inspired all over the world, you know, like Stones, everybody. They heard this fantastic music. So, again, having a place to do it was a joy. the rascals and moving into your solo career i guess like we've 
all bands, the magic at the start potentially wasn't quite there and it was time to move on to new pastures. Was that the feeling? Well, you know, it was a very sad moment for me when, uh, you know, Eddie decided to leave the fray. You know, uh, he decided to leave. Uh, actually, had a contract signing going from Atlantic to Columbia, which was kind of strange because we were right there. Uh, and he just, uh, for whatever reason, which I don't know if I'll ever know, he just didn't want to stay aboard. And so he left quite abruptly. And, um, okay, so we tried to, you know, continue. And we did a real a new complete organization of the of the band uh in which i had some great musicians i had a buzzy feeton on the guitar who was, was phenomenal guitar player gene decided to leave uh dino decided to leave we just couldn't capture that that kind of innocence that we had in the beginning because the music industry completely changed it changed uh, to such a degree that you had to really and i say this i'm, I'm not saying it as an excuse but after Woodstock, the business changed radically. The powers that be, the Wall Street companies, the, they realized there was a tremendous market to be had by the uh, baby boomers. And they put their tentacles into our world, and it became very monetary. Now, it was always monetary. I'm not going to you know, be naive and say, like, you know, you didn't have payola and stuff like that. Mm. But now it really became, you want a hit, you're going to have to pay for it. And there's many ways to pay for it, you know, and I'd rather not go into them on the air because, you know, it's boring. Yeah. But now it's to the point of you want to hit, you better have some money behind you because you're not going to get hurt. Uh, we didn't have that. You know, we didn't have that push anymore. So now we had to rely entirely on the music and entirely on the talent. And oh, my God, that ain't easy. <laughs> so the good thing about it is that those albums have survived. Yeah. The albums that we did on Columbia that I did there, for example, in Japan, were very big, you know, and uh, it was one of the uh, uh, records, uh, Peaceful World, that was uh, chosen to become uh, a CD before they had CDs. So they made that into a CD, which uh, was quite a, quite a thing for me. I like that.
And in terms of your solo work, um, you've worked with Todd Rundgren, yeah. quite an incredible producer. How did it work for you? Was he more hands-off or was he directing you? Todd's a, a strange being, you know what I mean? He's, he's very different. It was uh, an interesting working with him in that the, the method of his production, compared to the methods that I was brought up with, uh, Arif and Tom, and uh, were quite different. But he was more, cl- uh, I would say, clinical rather than emotion. Right. And um, I kind of missed the emotional part of like, say it was terrible. Say something. He was very different in the studio. He just, he did it more like a job than like a passion. And uh, I don't know if that was true or if that was just a feeling that I took away from him. Did he have his studio in Woodstock by then? Uh, no, he had a studio in New York right. at that time. I think it was called Secret Sound, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a nice studio. And it was it was interesting work, and I've kind of maintained a relationship with him over the years. He, of course, lives in Hawaii now, so I've kind of lost a little bit of touch. He lives in Kauai, but interesting working with other people. You know, I worked with Don Was, who was a whole different type of producer. You know, uh, basically, uh, Don uh, kind of lets you do your thing. You know, he brings people into the studio that are really talented, and like Steve Picaro, we had in the studio just lets them play, you know, kind of like directs traffic, you know, go over there. That's good. Oh, don't go over there. Go over there. You know, everybody has a different way of working, but the idea is to bring out from the artists what they're trying to uh, produce, what they're trying to create. And if you're lucky and all those things marry, you've got a chance at having a hit. Because you revisited a, a track from your debut album, Summer in El Barrio, is that right? Correct, yeah. That works really well. Good. Bit of a jazz element at times. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, a good song is a good song, you know, and it can be done and treated in a lot of different ways. The actual inspiration for that is, I came across this fellow who I've added to my band, who who is a outstanding Latin piano player. So I turned him loose on that. And man, he did a great job. Benny Harrison is his name. He's he's an unknown guy who's been around for many years. But, you know, I said, well, we, we've got to do that with a real Latin piano player. And, and he really, really did well on that. you 
Another big hit of yours in terms of your solo work was Only a Lonely Heart Sees. Yeah. About 1978. You were working with very notable people. Yeah. You've got Steve Jordan now playing with the Stones on drums. I think Luther Vandross on I know. backing vocals. You must have oh, yeah. had quite a unit at the time. Ah, uh, well, it was, you know, like friends and uh, people who were in the New York environment, which was so so much joy working with that, you know, because when you work out of New York, first of all, you've got the Philharmonic Orchestra to take from if you want strings or horns. Second of all, you've got the jazz elements, which you've got the David Sanborns down there. You've got phenomenal singers. I mean, Luther was a background singer on Atlantic Records. I mean, here's this. I mean, the first time he came in the studio, I said, what are you kidding me? I mean, this is, what is God here today? I, I don't know. Welcome, you know. And uh, I kind of helped him along, too, because, uh, you know, I did an album uh, for Swan Song, which was the Zepp label. Yeah. Led Zeppelin label. Maggie Bell, you're familiar with Maggie? Down the cross. She's, she's been on the podcast. She's wonderful. Well, you say hello for her, because we did an album together, which was on Swan Song. And uh, lo and behold, I had Luther on there. Wow. So I don't know if anybody's ever heard that album, but it was good. What I wanted to do with Maggie was I wanted to write one song for her and i wanted to go out and get really excellent songs and have her do and so i uh, the song that i'm relating to right now is called here there and everywhere by you know who yeah you know <laughs> we hired luther to do the uh, vocal image wow. oh my god we had john bonham on drums but well, we had a blast you know see that's the thing if i don't know it's a theory of mine but i if you enjoy making music, I think it comes into the grooves. But if you ever ask Maggie about that, I had so much fun with her, man. She's she's something else, let me tell you. I wanted to close by asking you about a song and a project that you had with another one of my previous podcast guests, and that's Steve Cropper, Yeah, who needs no introduction. But it's, it's a song that I think your daughter was on, I Can't Stand It. Yeah. How did the collaboration with Steve happen? And we must talk about how the talent runs in your family as well. <laughs> well, Steve and I have known each other since, you know, the old days in Atlantic. Of course, when I moved to Nashville, he was already living here. So in Nashville, what people do here, when you meet someone, rather than say, let's have a drink or let's have a cup, you say, let's write together. So when Steve and I got together in Nashville, it was now like as writers. You know, this uh, gentleman moved from New York here. Uh, his name was John Tiven. He does a lot of uh, writing out of his home and he said come on let get you guys together you know two hall of famers here so we started writing never thinking that we would make a record out of this but john had different ideas come on i'm going to call up uh stacks and see if they'll uh put this thing out again no idea we just we're just writing we were having a writing session now my daughter aria we named her properly she's got a phenomenal voice She's a housewife now with two kids, and even though she has aspirations to be in the music business, her little stint in the music business was enough to say, maybe I should stay home. But I really want to do more with her because she's got a real gift. And uh, that's a song, another song that I've always, always loved. I can't stand it. You know, it's like it's another one of those songs that people may not know, the original. But uh, listen to the original sometime, man. You'll you'll be blown away. <laughs> You're still active in terms of playing the, the Rascals material and yeah. your work overall, a long time ago now, but with the Rock and Roller Hall of Fame, the music is just not ever go away and you seem in, in demand as ever. 
Well, you know, that's the good thing about our generation there. You know, there's a kind of like a, I think, a renaissance movement that took place in those years that, you know, it's just like the painters from uh, Europe. They still want to hear it and they still want to see it. So, you know, again, very lucky, very blessed. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Felix, and it's been a pleasure to listen to your new album, which I've um, been hugely impressed with. And I wish you all the best with the album and your continued uh, tours playing the, the wonderful Rascals materials. So thank you. Well, thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and God bless. Take care of yourself. Hope to see you on the other side one of these years. All right. See you later. Take care of me. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.